Welcome to The Conversation at airsafe.com with your host, Dr. Todd Curtis. This show features an interview with Time Magazine senior writer Amanda Ripley, author of the book The Unthinkable, Who Survives from Disaster Strikes and Why. Madden has traveled the world, writing about and studying a number of disasters, including the attacks of 9-11 and the devastation of Hurricane Katrina. She currently covers both risk and homeland security issues for Time Magazine. She's written for a number of other publications, including Congressional Quarterly, New York Times Magazine, Time Out, and Washington Monthly. Hello, Amanda, and thanks for joining us today. Can you start by giving us a brief overview of what's in the book? The book is about how human beings behave in disasters. And to get there, I basically triangulated uh, to try to get a sense of the answer to that question. And so the first uh, prong is the stories of survivors of all different kinds of disasters. And what you find is that the behavioral patterns are very similar in very different kinds of disasters. Uh, But the wisdom that people have learned from being in these situations is, of course, invaluable. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing was to sort of complement their stories with the latest science into how the brain uh, responds to extreme duress and how groups operate in these situations. And then the last thing was, when possible, I tried to do some simulations and and those sorts of things to uh, to get a tiny, um, incredibly incomplete <laughs> glimpse of what it might be like uh, to have been in those situations. And this is your first book, is it? Yes, it is my first book. It came out of reporting that I did after 9-11, and I just got more and more interested in uh, how regular people actually behave in these situations. Um, so I found that that wasn't really part of the conversation uh, in most cases when we're talking about emergency preparedness or homeland security. So that's that's kind of how I got interested in this. Now, speaking of the aviation experience for a minute, there have been, of course, many evacuations and many airplane crashes over the years. But what I haven't seen a lot of are systematic scientific explorations of how survivors behaved. Uh, most of the accident reports that are out there from the NTSB and elsewhere don't really get heavily into that part of it, focusing obviously on the uh, mechanical and flight crew aspect of it. And you've had a couple of aviation accidents where where there have been some significant research into passenger behavior. Can you talk about that for a minute? Sure. One of the ones I looked at was the Ten Reef accident, which I believe was in 1977. And uh, that was in the Canary Islands. Um, And it was... It really uh, an awful accident, one of the deadliest accidents in, in history. Um, but what happened was you had two uh, passenger planes colliding on the runway in heavy fog. Um, but uh, one of the things that was really important from a um, human behavior standpoint was that on one of the planes, um, there were most people survived the initial impact of that accident. But of course the plane was on fire and they had to very quickly get off the plane and get out. And that was uh, harder than most aviation safety experts at that time would have expected and more people died in that fire than they would have expected. And there was some uh were some survivor accounts of people some people 
not moving at all. Uh, so in other words, they seemed to be okay, but they were just sort of sitting there with their hands crossed in their laps and not not moving off the plane. So that, of course, you know, it became a um, not only a tragedy but a mystery as to why that was. Sort of the uh, deer in the headlights effect. Well, the I think there needs to be more research on this, but the most convincing explanation that I have heard um, came actually from evolutionary psychologists who have looked at animal behavior in laboratories, and every animal that they have studied reacts the same way when they believe that they are trapped and they are extremely frightened. They shut down very quickly and go into this sort of stupor, um, which seems to be more than just some vague sense of shock. It seems to be, like you say, a deer-in-the-headlights response that is probably an evolved defense mechanism since it's so common across different species. And, of course, you know, there is evidence that it works if you're being attacked by a predator that going into this stupor can actually be a good decision if you have no other way out. But it it is not uh, the right decision in many modern disasters like, uh, of course, a plane crash. One of the things I found fascinating from some of the accounts was uh, your observation that based on people's background, experience, and training, they revert to type. You know, you had the story of the restaurant fire where the uh, the busboys and waitstaff uh, started to fight the fire and the uh, people who had been seating guests beforehand were herding the guests out, but they were focusing on the guests that they had personally seated and sort of ignoring everyone else. Do you see that as a common thread for a lot of these events? That's a great point, and I'd like to get your thoughts on it too, Todd. I mean, but one of the um, aviation safety experts I talked to for the book uh, said to me that he'd never heard of a flight attendant freezing going into this paralysis mode, which, if true, and I didn't come across any evidence either of that, um, it would suggest that we do very much revert to whatever role we were playing before the disaster. And it also, of course, would affirm what we know to be true, which is that training is essential. Uh, and the more realistic the training, the more effective it is. And the more information and familiarity you have, the faster you will move and the more appropriately you'll respond uh, under extreme duress. So, yeah, it was really interesting to see how much your role affects your behavior and, and not only your role um, in, in life, in the world. So, in other words, uh, heroes are more likely to be people who think of themselves as, as uh, helpers in some capacity. Uh, they're more likely to be men, blue-collar, often single and childless, and people who uh, identify either they work in the service industry or they work in a very physical job or they feel in some way that it's part of their identity to help others. And you also see it um, in the moment. So if you are a passenger on a plane, you're going to probably have a tendency to behave more passively and more obediently uh, than if you are the pilot or the flight uh, crew on that plane. So your role very much influences your behavior. In The Unthinkable, you mentioned the fact that military veterans, even if their experience had been decades in the past, sort of easily reverted to type. And when I, when I heard that, I thought to myself, given the aviation system, the aviation business and how it's put together, especially pilots, even if they're not military veterans, the process of learning how to fly is very much a, okay, here are the processes, here are the emergency procedures. You know, if things get really dicey, 
You focus on doing this, this, and this, so that when things happen, pilots have a tendency to think, think of things on the fly and react. Now, have you done much work looking at people other than flight attendants who may have had that sort of training, although not being military veterans? Yeah, I think you're, I think you're absolutely right that that kind of training is not unique to the military. In fact, one of the best places to see it, believe it or not, is in the Boy Scouts, where um, mm. there is this kind of can-do attitude where preparedness is valued as, as almost, you know, sort of a masculine ethic, and where this sense of um, having a, an agenda and the ability to carry it out. So I think that's, that's the most important mindset, because otherwise, you know, it, it wouldn't make sense to see people who were in the military 30 years ago and haven't been in it since still perform that way under extreme stress. It's not that they remember the specific skills. It's more the, the culture and the mindset. And, and the research does show, uh, even for recovery, that people who feel they have some control over their destiny and that there is meaning in life's turmoil, that those people tend to recover more fully and more quickly from trauma. So you see that it's it, a little bit subtle uh, as far as what it is about military training that seems to, on average, help us in crises. This is a veering a little bit off the main topic, but you mentioned how in Boy Scouts you get children that sort of exposure to that sort of ethic. What other things that children go through, especially girls, go through that would give them the same kind of experience or the same kind of outlook? Well, you know, I don't think, I haven't seen really good research that I could feel like I'm 100% confident that this behavior would lead to better performance. Uh, but I, to speculate, I would say that probably team sports would be a similar kind of mindset where you have, you feel like you have real agency over your destiny, even, even if you may not. I mean, you know, there's some games you're just not going to win no matter how hard you try. But certainly the attitude is essential. In, in, in sports, and I also think that we find kids to be very receptive to this in general, which is why fire departments and police departments are always, you know, going into the school system and teaching kids to stop, drop, and roll, and going through these, this kind of training. It, it is a little bit of a mystery as to why we stop doing that when people uh, become of age. I'm not sure why that is, but it's certainly a shame because you continue to need that outlook and that mindset and those skills. In some of your work, you've talked about how in, for example, uh, skyscrapers, that you don't have fire drills that you would see in elementary schools and whatnot because the people who run the buildings are afraid of lawsuits, people getting injured during uh, training. But obviously, something like 9-11, a whole lot of things were pushed to the forefront where people had to react as groups or as individuals. And you were in New York that day, uh, what are some of the observations you saw, whether they were in the book or not, about what happened that day, how people reacted, and what the biggest lesson learned you had from that day? Well, I think we know that 50% of the people in the World Trade Center had never been um, down the stairwells in their buildings, even though those were actually quite complicated stairwells. You had to cross over at certain points, and it wasn't intuitive. And even though those buildings had been bombed in 93, uh, and that was followed by an absolutely disastrous evacuation, 
So you see that we learn some lessons from these disasters, but then we don't. We tend to stop at implementing the things that involve the active participation of regular people, civilians, passengers, office workers, what have you. We see this in plane crashes too, where the changes uh, are, can be quite dramatic and effective, but they seem to stop when it comes to involving regular people, partly out of a fear of liability, partly out of uh, commercial fears that people will not fly on the airline and so forth. Um, but I think for me, one of the biggest lessons was that, you know, one of the women I profile in the book who was in uh, the Trade Center and had a rather epic journey out uh, on that morning and also in 93, she, she now gives tours of Ground Zero, as do many of the survivors and firefighters, um, and w the question she gets asked most of all is, what was it like in the stairwell? How were people behaving? And every time she surprises people by saying, people were very, very calm. And so I think for me that was an important lesson that seems to extend to most uh, disasters, that, that people tend to be much more calm and quiet than we think they will be, which isn't to say they aren't scared. I mean, which isn't to say that their hearts aren't pounding in their chest, mm -hmm. but they don't behave hysterically. Uh, that, is not, that is not the first thing we should worry about. Rather, the first thing we should worry about is that people will move too slowly. So it's quite the opposite. And, and we do know that people took, on average, six minutes before beginning to evacuate the Trade Center. About 1,000 people shut down their computers. Uh, people made all sorts of phone calls. They're, and this is all very normal and, in some ways, adaptive behavior. You're trying to gather information. It's, it, but it really also shows that, in most cases, there is a profound delay in our response to what is an exceptionally uh, frightening and unusual circumstance. And from what I've seen, and Todd, you probably know more about this than I do, you see that same delay um, on planes when, for example, oxygen masks drop from the ceiling. The research that I have seen shows that a lot of people are very slow to sort of grasp that they need to now actively reach forward and put that mask on themselves. Rather, they end up sort of staring at it, waiting for instruction. So, so we see that in every disaster. And unfortunately, you know, 9-11 was an unusual laboratory in that sense because we had 15,000 people who did evacuate, and who do have really uh, compelling and surprising stories to tell. Now, one thing that comes to mind when you're telling that story is something that is a new phenomenon, post-9-11 phenomenon. In fact, it's a YouTube phenomenon, in that I've seen several aviation events, most recently the Qantas event of a few days ago, where people were out there taking their cell phone video of what was going on around there, after the event, which is very instructive for people looking at the event afterwards. But one that really, you know, was me really memorable, this is January of 2008. It was an Iran Airlines uh, aircraft that crashed on takeoff. Everyone got out, but there's this great video taken by a passenger. They were maybe a hundred feet away from this burning aircraft, just fully engulfed in flame. And you saw a bunch of passengers milling about, some with their hand baggage, sort of like looking at the scene as the fire truck showed up. So I'm saying to myself, okay, they got half of it right. They got out the plane. They got out alive. But some of these folks still had their carry-on baggage, and at least one guy decided to take pictures. So uh, I'm not sure if that's a, a problem that we should, as an industry, the aviation industry, address, sort of like giving an extra instruction. 
if you evacuate the plane, don't take pictures. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting how that, that becomes a new um, distraction and a new thing to do that feels, I think, reassuring in some way. In other words, instead of just sitting there watching the world dissolve around you, to photograph it or to videotape it allows you a sort of um, false sense of distance, I think. And so there is that risk that, that people will begin to do this. I mean, we've all heard stories. I recently heard a story about a bad skiing accident, uh, and everyone around this person who was lying there hurt just immediately took out their cell phones uh, because there's a helicopter coming and so forth. So it's a strange uh, custom that we've now developed that can be, as you say, dangerous and also can create a lot of delay. But there is, but it's common in the sense that there has always been a problem, as you know, with people taking their baggage with them and this is true in this was true in the world trade center as well so the woman i profiled describes this powerful urge to take things with her once she decided to leave it was very clear that something was horribly wrong people were screaming at her to get out and she would have an hour walk ahead of her down the stairs which she knew having evacuated before but she found herself walking in circles in her cubicle thinking trying to find things to take with her so she ends up taking her purse and a mystery novel she'd been reading and some other things. So you see there's this real tendency to try to find normalcy and to revert to normal customs in these situations that, that hopefully just by understanding we could, we could try to override. And you're right, it probably is a good idea to train flight crews on this as well, that this is a new form of this kind of behavior. Well, speaking of the aviation experience, uh, what kinds of things do you see as being helpful for passengers to get themselves mentally prepared for you know, having a plane crash? Oh, I was just going to say, I think the most important thing is to recognize that uh, plane crashes are more survivable than we think, you know, on average, so that you do have some role to play. And I really feel strongly that that alone, you know, if you really truly believe that in your heart, uh, then you will probably perform better than if you believe you are, you, you are nothing but screwed. You are just a victim. Um, and so I think that's important. And I also think that, you know, certainly anything you can do to familiarize yourself with how to get to the exits, and if you can even give yourself a sort of body memory, one of the things that came out of that 10 reef crash that I was talking about earlier is that uh, one couple that had made it out, an older couple, the wife described... Uh, a sense of stupor setting in in her own mind after the crash and not moving at all until her husband yelled at her to get up and follow him. And so she did. So we see how a, an aggressive order can, can easily override that stupor. And then, and then she followed him out and she saw other people just sitting there not moving. And when... Uh, analysts asked her husband later why they why he had moved so quickly. He said that he had been in a fire as a child, and ever since then, every structure he goes into, he's very aware of where the exits are. And before the plane took off, he had actually identified the nearest exits and pointed them out to his wife. So you see that he was one of those people who has a high sense of situational awareness and also a conviction that he has a role to play in his own survival. And coincidence or not, he was one of the ones to make it off quite quickly off this plane. 
one of the things that, that, that struck me, reading through the portions of the book and listening to some of the readings you've done, is the process of writing the book and promoting the book and such. What can you share about that whole journey from the idea of, gee, there might be a book here, to actually going through and having it out there on the shelves? Well, it's a good question, actually. I don't get asked that very often. I mean, for me, it's been a real learning experience. I, I loved the actual research of the book, and I will say that although we'd all love to see more research come out of uh, airplane crashes and, and airplane safety, I was very impressed with the amount of research that was out there compared to every other kind of disaster. So I, I end up having quite a bit of material about plane crashes in the book, even though they are, as you know, not that common, but because we know so much more uh, because they are so regulated. So even though it may not be where we want it to be, it is comparatively quite good, I will tell you, um, compared to, say, building fires or things that happen much more commonly. Um, so, so that's one thing that was interesting from a research point of view. I, I also found that, you know, in my reporting for time, I cover Homeland Security and terrorism and disasters uh, for time. And I would often find it, I mean, you know, doing these stories about 9-11 and Katrina and other disasters can become somewhat overwhelming, and you almost get sort of numb to them. Um, which means you have to sort of take a break from them. But I found that doing this book was very different because I was able to move beyond the media narrative of, you know, loss and tragedy and redemption and really get into what actually happens to us physio physiologically, psychologically, socially in these situations in a constructive way so that we can learn to do better. And what I found was it was much more hopeful than I had expected. So I, I came away from this much less worried about almost everything and much more hopeful about how much better we could do and how much better we do do uh, in most cases than we probably expect. Um, from a promotional point of view, it's been interesting to see how the collective imagination is so much more interested in, I knew this you know, rationally, but it's interesting to see it play out, so much more interested in plane crashes than every other kind of disaster. Um, and I think that's, that's unto itself perfectly, you know, normal and understandable given the dynamics of a plane crash. But it, it is interesting to see that I think we still feel like Mother Nature is somehow to blame in other kinds of disasters that kill many more people, and, mm -hmm. and therefore we don't think as much about about what could have prevented it and what we could have done differently to prevent loss of life and property. And, of course, at this point in time, Mother Nature is really not to blame for mass casualty disasters in this country. Um, we know enough about where disasters are going to strike and how to prevent a huge loss of life and property that, that we're now really, <laughs> we're really to blame at this point. But there still is not that well, mentality of proactive response. Let me run the risk of doing something that will, uh, well, rub people the wrong way, at least some people the wrong way. You've covered extensively things that happened pre and post Katrina. What can you say about two government agencies and their role down there, FEMA and the Coast Guard? How 
well, in the public's mind, obviously there's a vast difference between how one performed versus the other. What lessons do you think you've learned from looking at those two situations, those two organizations? You know, I'm glad you brought that up because I, I actually, as we were talking before, was thinking how there's an interesting analogy between how human beings individually behave in disasters and how agencies and organizations behave. And what you find is that if people have training and a clear sense of what their job is and whom they report to, and there's very clear lines of authority, then they perform much better, whether they're a passenger on a jet or an agency or a member of the Coast Guard, um, than if there is any confusion. Now, that's easier said than done for FEMA, which is a facilitating organization. It's not it's not what we think it is or what we want it to be, and it never was and it never will be, I don't think, at least not in the near future. It's a check-writing bureaucracy, and in this country we rely almost entirely on states and locals to really do the hard work of responding to the immediate disaster, and FEMA is supposed to just come in and kind of facilitate the money. Um, so, but that said, obviously there was a huge failure on every level during Katrina, and the Coast Guard was a huge standout of success. And I'm convinced that that's because, in part, well, for the same reasons people do well in disasters. The Coast Guard is training realistically because they are literally doing life-saving every single day. That's what they do. They're out on the ocean pulling people out of trouble every single day, so they're ready for it in a way that most agencies are not. And secondly, they are very much um, empowered to act in a way that most bureaucrats are not. So in the Coast Guard, if you're on the scene, even if you're low-ranking, you're allowed to make operational decisions without checking with anyone. And that is what happened in Katrina. So they were out there rescuing tens of thousands of people without waiting for anyone to tell them to do so. Now, I'd like to veer back to something you said earlier about how you looked at a variety of disasters, but in the aviation world, you found far more information than the average set of disasters. What kinds of resources did you see in the aviation side of things you didn't see elsewhere? Well, yes. I mean, there, just having those NTSB reports is useful, although I, I agree that they really are somewhat limited when it gets to human factors. There's, there's much you want to know much more. Uh, than is actually in there. But the fact that they do interview so many passengers and have pieces of their accounts in their report is already miles ahead of any other, really any other disaster, if you think about it. I mean, after Katrina, there were a couple different outlets that did huge reports on what went wrong. But it was, you know, not really from talking to thousands of survivors. Uh, it was mostly from talking, sort of analyzing the bureaucratic delays and so forth. Most agencies don't focus very much on the regular people who are always, you know, first on the scene in every disaster. So, so I find that to be something that other, uh, other, other disasters should be, should be analyzed to that degree and beyond. I also found that within the FAA, there are some people who look carefully at human factors and care about it, and they're not always listened to, as you know, but, but they're there. <laughs> and uh, you don't see that. I mean, you know, in a building, a skyscraper, the people who make decisions are the real estate people, the corporate tenants. There are, there are building codes in some places, not in every place in this country. 
and those are important, but they tend to be um, controlled to some extent by commercial imperatives. So, so there, there's really no one at the table um, representing regular people, at least to the degree that they deserve to be represented. Well, as we uh, close this interview, I'd like to ask you one more thing. Basically, uh, to give my audience a sales pitch, uh, my audience is airline passengers, of course, and a lot of people from the aviation business. What will they learn from your book? Why should they get it? Well, I'm happy to do that. Thanks, Todd. Uh, <laughs> you know, I think that most, most of all people will find some really surprising similarities between uh, what happens in a plane crash before, during, and after, and what happens in a sinking ferry or a burning building or a hurricane. And that really surprised me, actually, how similar the behavior is. And then, and then of course, how illustrative it can be to look at very different situations and learn from them. Um, and, and that comparative analysis, I think, is, is not really um, out there in most places, at least where I've looked. Usually it's, it's kind of stovepiped. You look at, there are people who look at hurricanes and people who look at earthquakes but they don't talk to each other. So I found that to be really useful, and I think that would probably be helpful for, for your readers. I thank you for taking the time to be with us here today. Amanda Ripley, author of The Unthinkable, Who Survives When Disaster Strikes and Why? Once again, thank you for being with us. Thank you so much, Todd. It was fun. I appreciate it. For more information about Amanda Ripley's book, please visit ripley.airsafe.org. There you'll find more information about the book, as well as links to some of Amanda's other work. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.